Dove, which I mentioned is the champion and underwriter of this movement from a corporate perspective, recently partnered with LinkedIn mm -hmm. to create more, you know, to really amplify the public discourse mm -hmm. around what's happening in the workplace with respect to hair discrimination. And one of the things they offered in that partnership were training assets and materials, videos, really, that you mm -hmm. can, hiring managers can access. Mm. That's a heavy question, Elaine. <laughs> well, it will be There's so much. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C level executives, leaders of institutions, and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus? on a piece of paper. Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is an award-winning entrepreneur and innovative leader behind game-changing social impact movements and marketing programs for some of the world's biggest brands She's an astute cultural marketing strategist and one of the chief architects of the Crown Act legislative movement to end race-based hair discrimination nationwide. A lot to talk about today, but before we get into that, here's a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Paulina Nwoka Blanchard is the founder and managing partner of Seven Elements Group, a culture-first business strategy and marketing firm that helps big brands drive growth and impact through the lens of culture. Prior to Seven Elements, Olina was the co-owner of Joy Collective, an award-winning and nationally recognized cultural insight marketing and creative agency. Melina spent a decade leading cultural marketing education and developing inclusive marketing strategies for a diverse portfolio of clients in beauty and personal, sports and entertainment, healthcare, retail, finance services, and higher education. Recently recognized on the Route 100 2022 list of most influential Black Americans, she has been building value for corporations and communities for three decades. Molina sits on a number of boards and is the current acting chairman of a board of directors and head of the Governance Committee for Digital Pioneers Academy, a public chartered school in Washington, D.C. Academically, Olina holds an industrial engineering degree from Purdue University and an MBA from the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Olina to Head Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Elaine. Lovely to be here with you. Excellent. Okay, I'm really looking forward to this episode and hearing your insights on a number of things. Let's begin with an introduction of your organisation. So tell my listeners about your current venture, Seven Elements Group, uh, and the motivation behind this. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I'm always excited to talk about seven elements and and what we do. And I always start with folks understanding where our name comes from. Mm. Um, you mentioned in the introduction, thank, thank you so much for that lovely intro, that mm. we're a culture first business and marketing strategy firm. Mm. And so seven elements is named for the seven elements of culture. And we help brands understand the role of culture in connecting in a very meaningful way to consumers. And we help brands build strategies Mm -hmm. and initiatives that really drive growth and social value at the same time. And the the impetus for it, really the motivation behind it is that I've personally grown up with a multicultural and multinational experience. And so mm -hmm. I know firsthand that culture makes the world go round. It's not necessarily race or gender, but rather, you know, the social norms yeah. and values yeah. and experiences that we all have in common. And so I believe very deeply that culture is the secret source that creates human connection between people and brands. And so that's seven elements group. Well, well, I've got to ask you, what are the seven elements of culture? <laughs> well, most of them people really know naturally. But when you think about the seven elements of culture, you're talking about customs and traditions. You're talking about economics, language, religion, government, arts and culture, literature, okay really social organization so you know all the things that naturally are the means in which we operate mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and we exist as communities but we don't think about it language is probably the first element of culture that we naturally gravitate to yeah. or think about that connects us really the means of communication yeah. it's all about what we understand isn't it yeah okay um there's a lot of people out there i see them on linkedin claiming to be marketing thought leaders and i want to ask a real and proven person on this matter this subject matter what exactly is a marketing thought leader and how <laughs> does one really become one i love that question you know i think when we think about the business world yeah. um we think about thought leaders you know, we hear the language, right? Overused, yes. I would say, to some degree. And I don't think marketing as a discipline is any different, is that thought leadership is really, to me, about challenging the status quo and setting new standards mm. for your discipline. And so marketing, to me, is as much a science as it is an art. Mm -hmm. And so like any other industry, it's important that we continue to influence and inspire innovation in the way that we do things. And obviously marketing is about you know, connecting brands and business to consumers. Marketing leadership for me is really about, um, you know, keeping up with an ever-changing consumer audience, mm -hmm. which is changing at lightning speed. And so it's important that we continue to challenge the way we do things in marketing mm -hmm. and some of our traditional approaches for reaching consumers. And mm -hmm. so to me, thought leadership is setting new standards and, um, I have been really, really blessed to have opportunities to do new and different things. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a position to share my insight about those experiences and how those things continue to challenge mm -hmm. what we do in the marketing world to be effective in reaching consumers and connecting brands with consumers. Mm -hmm. I think the clues in the name and, and what you said, leadership is thought leadership not thought following which is <laughs> which is which is the true true definition of marketing thought leader um I, I think so much has gone on in in such a short space of time 
uh, and it's affected everything, business, social, personal. I want um, to know in your opinion, Alina, how has marketing changed and adapted in this current world, especially in the last five years or even two years, because a lot has happened in the last two years. I'm sure you would agree with me. Oh, absolutely. So much has changed. You know, I love the idea of what's happened more recently, but if you just take a look at the last decade, yeah, right, um, the change is tremendous. Think about what's happened in the last five, 10 years, just with respect to the proliferation of data, mm. right? It's forced marketing to evolve because consumers don't just get their marketing messages from traditional advertising, you know, on linear channels anymore, Right. Think about how influencer marketing has exploded in the last five years because the trusted messenger is replacing that big brand voice. So I think in general, we've seen things evolve more so about personalization and omnichannel experiences. When I talk about how consumers are changing and how much data there is and how many marketing messages you have to cut through to get to a consumer, we have to look differently about consumer psychology, what consumers actually want, and all the different channels in which we need to reach them. We just can't be in one place. And so I think marketing has changed because we have to consider where the consumer is. And so that's what's changed tremendously. But if you just look at the last um, two years, as you've mentioned, the last two years are really our evolution out of a global pandemic. And so um, just the way we function, the way we get information and the way we communicate globally has changed. We've now recognized that a lot more can be done in a virtual world. And think about businesses that were positioned to scale and thrive like Zoom. If we think about some other changes, especially in the last few years, Think about how mobile marketing has changed, especially in the world of dynamic advertising. So uh, I was, you know, looking for a summer dress. Navy blue is my, is one of my favorite colors. And I Googled, you know, blue dress, navy blue dress. And the next time I logged on to Instagram, I had ads everywhere for blue dresses, right? And I was yeah. having a conversation with my husband in the kitchen the other day about a family holiday to Europe. And then I saw ads online everywhere for hotels, you know, in Europe, because my Apple Watch had picked up our conversation. Oh, mm. So what's changed in recent years is how in marketing is how brands and businesses are adapting to the way consumers now expect to receive and are receiving information. Mm -hmm. And so things are changing at lightning speed, really because of the proliferation of, of information that we were talking about. Yeah, earlier. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the technology. W what are you seeing and understanding with the, the, the customer behavior changes and, and customer adaptation? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think the expectation of consumers today is a little bit different um, than it was, again, because Mm -hmm. There's more access to information and thus consumers are more scrutinizing. They can be. So I think with respect to brands, there's an expectation that brands are not just in the market to offer goods and services, but rather to deliver value. I mm. think that's a big difference. And it's interesting, you know, recently I was just looking at what the average age 
of a um, the global average age of a consumer rather than, you know, I'm US based. And so I know those numbers in the US, but I was looking at the average age of a consumer around the world is 30, right? Yep. 30 years old, which means they were born in 1993. <laughs> I'm significantly older than that. But <laughs> if I think about the last three decades, we were just talking about how marketing has changed in the last five yeah. you know, years or last few years. But think about the last three decades, broadband and wireless technology, <laughs> Amazon, social media yeah. yeah that's the backdrop of their lives okay. right and so consumer behavior has changed accordingly we have a consumer that's now subscribed hook line and sinker to a convenience economy mm-hmm. um and we run our lives from a handheld device mm-hmm. and so i think about 30 years ago um you know, food delivery, at least in the United States, was about whether Domino's pizza could deliver within 30 minutes, 30 minute promise, right? Yes. Whereas today, you've got DoorDash and Uber Eats and everything else that's delivering not just whatever food you choose for the evening, but they can also go to the supermarket for you, they can yes. go to the drugstore, chemist for you. So I yeah, think that's exactly right so consumer behavior has absolutely changed um you know we we operate in a consumer uh, a convenience economy Mm -hmm. and that's the mindset of Mm -hmm. the young consumer today yeah everything is now personalized and you know and consumers getting more and more demanding so it's it's a crazy time but it's a very interesting time and as you say it's very convenient for customers now now let, let's change direction a little bit um first first i must congratulate you on this and i want to talk to you about your work on the crown act um firstly for my listeners um briefly explain what the crown act is when did the movement start and where are you today with this? Yes, thank you so much for the question. I'm excited to share because we just celebrated National Crown Day on July 3rd. So just this oh. this Monday, we celebrated National Crown Day, which is the anniversary of the signing of the first Crown Act in the United States in the state of California on July 3rd, 2019. Okay. The Crown Act is a law that prohibits race-based hair discrimination. And what it does is, from a technical perspective, it amends existing anti-discrimination law at the state level in the United States, at least those are the laws that have passed at the state level. And it amends existing anti-discrimination law in workplace and education codes such that um, the definition of race uh, includes protective natural hair texture and protective hairstyles mm-hmm. such as braids, locks, bantu knots, and twists yeah. that are known um, to be associated historically with um, African origins yeah. or Black um, people. And so that's what it does. So it ensures that um, someone cannot be denied Uh, entrance to school or cannot be denied livelihood in the workplace just Mm -hmm. because their hair has been deemed, their natural hair has been deemed inappropriate or unprofessional. And so that's what we're protecting against. And um, that is what the law protects against. But the movement is the intersection of policy and culture where not only are we ensuring that their laws that prohibit that sort of or that type of race-based discrimination, but that we're also 
changing the narrative around Eurocentric standards of beauty and what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that black hair and the, you know, African aesthetic uh, is as beautiful and as acceptable, if not more, mm-hmm. than any other standard that has been established through history and through time. Mm. I, think, I think it's incredible work that you're doing and I think it's long overdue and everybody knows that I too am um, a woman of colour so I I too understand perfectly what you're doing and you know I spent 20 years in the corporate world and uh, most of that time I've spent um, with processed hair as I call it and there are effects to it and so I think it's fantastic that this act is in place okay it's in place in the us but i'm sure like most things it will spill over into europe and other parts of of the world um how has this been received by the corporate world i mean is it with understanding surprise resistant well it's such a good question things have evolved um over the past you know five plus years since we started this i am one of the Um, original creators of this idea and movement along with three other women Mm -hmm. and you know a village of of individuals and organizations and and the Dove brand which is part of the Unilever portfolio that has been the corporate champion um, and underwriter of this movement from the beginning Mm -hmm. so things have really evolved and changed um, in the last five years initially when we started the work in 2018 and successfully introduced the first Crown Act in 2019. Um, We were seeing diversity training and conversations as a norm in the workplace, but the conversation around hair being an extension um, or characteristic of race and playing a role in the workplace Mm -hmm. wasn't a consideration then. And, you know, the natural hair movement as you talked about processed hair I had relaxers in my hair for a very long time and felt obligated to do so and to straighten my hair in order to be accepted in the workplace so while there has been a a movement towards natural hair um, for decades in the United States especially there hadn't been that same consideration or conversation happening in corporate America We Mm -hmm. now see as a result of this movement, that conversation happening in corporate America where there's more consideration for diversity and inclusion training Mm -hmm. to consider the conversation around natural black hair and why that's an important part of the inclusion and diversity conversation. So we are seeing that and we're seeing it significantly. Uh, You know, Dove, which I mentioned is that is the champion and underwriter of this movement from a corporate perspective recently partnered with LinkedIn Mm -hmm. to create more you know to really amplify the public discourse Mm -hmm. around what's happening in the workplace with respect to hair discrimination and one of the things they offered in that partnership were training assets and materials videos really that you can hiring managers can access so I think we're seeing more conversation in the U.S. alone you're seeing a lot more Um, just very unapologetic displays of natural hair, which is wonderful, the celebration of natural hair. For example, um, on-air news anchors that 
have traditionally black on-air personalities and news anchors have typically worn straight hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been the norm. And we saw a big difference, especially this past Monday, as you know, the community of of black news anchors ac- across the country um, were asked to wear their natural hair on air in really in solidarity and commitment to this idea that we're shifting the cultural narrative. So we're seeing more movement and more progress in the corporate world. Slowly, but but surely. But another thing that I'd like to add, what was the trigger to start this, to to get to the Crown Act itself? Was was there a trigger? Was there something? Or was it, I don't know, a, a bubbling conversation that was going on for a while and then it sort of it became to this you know was there something that kick-started it there, there was something that kick-started it there were a few things um one in particular which was uh we were approached back then I uh my former business partner and I had um Joy Collective a also a cultural marketing agency that we've since shut down but at the time we were approached by uh AC Eggleston Bracey a leader and um you know just legacy executive in the in the beauty industry and she had recently taken on a position at Unilever and she was looking for a partner a marketing partner who really understood uh the black consumer and the black female consumer and Dove at the time had identified hair discrimination as a pain point in beauty and Mm. were looking for a partner to help them really understand how to create more equity in beauty. And at the time, we had an opportunity and were invited to uh, present and pitch and ended up winning the work and started working with Dove to identify how we could address this Mm. particular issue. And we then met and partnered with a woman named Ajua B. Asamoa, who I call my sister in crown. And she is somebody who's a racial equity expert. She is a, um, you know, policy strategist who's advised presidents and members of Congress in the U.S. And she was the one who really came up with the idea to address it from a legislative perspective. And all of us came together really on behalf of the Dove brand to address this from a legislative and cultural perspective. So that really was the impetus, but at the same time, um, serendipitous uh, was the very year we started the work. And to be honest, we started the conversations in April and at the beginning of May, the Supreme Court in the US dismissed a case. They really refused to hear a case of hair discrimination where a woman, Chastity Jones, had been made a job offer and then the job offer was rescinded when she was asked to cut her locks and those of us who are black women understand or of the community understand that locks are a protective hairstyle and traditional hairstyle but they have deep meaning in 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 the community um and they take years to grow Mm -hmm. and they have no connection or relation to whether your hair is professional or clean or dirty. And there are terrible misguided and stereotyped mm. uh, perceptions of that. So at the same time that we were having this conversation about what, you know, race-based hair discrimination, what impact it has and how challenging it is for black people, especially in the US, we were seeing the implications from a legal perspective And then that same year, 
uh, on social media, we saw a lot of cases of young children being denied entry to school. There was a case of Faith Fennedy in August 2018 who had just got fresh braids, you know, and it's a very expensive yes. and empowering process. Yes, that you know that we go through yes. um, as Black girls and Black women. And you see her in tears, distraught, uh, an 11, 12-year-old mm. in the sixth grade being asked to leave the school because she had fresh braids that were deemed inappropriate and lots of excuses from the school as to why they mm. were deemed um against school policy. So the timing made sense, you know, Dove approaching us and asking us to work with them to really understand the beauty needs and how to, of black women and to create more equity in the beauty conversation, but also for us seeing that it had social and economic implication. And the only way to really drive change was through policy change. Mm. That, okay. that really was the impetus for it. That's that's fantastic. Actually, once again, congratulations on this so needed movement to save many women from harmful chemical processing of their hair that you know leads to hair loss, health issues, etc. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on slightly onto something that ties in a little with what we've just been talking about, but at the same time, is gaining ground in the marketing space. Uh, Alina, explain to me what is cultural marketing strategy. Oh, I'm glad you asked this question, because I think folks struggle with what it really means. And to me, it's about an approach to marketing that really considers the unique lived experiences of different consumer groups or communities. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about culture and why Seven Elements Group is named for the seven elements of culture. So I think cultural marketing strategy is really about, um, you know, understanding those unique lived experiences. Mm -hmm and coming to marketing from a true um, consumer psychology perspective. And, you know, cultural marketing to me is really an approach that shatters the notion of a one-size-fits-all model. Mm -hmm. It means we can't sacrifice relevancy and thus effectiveness for efficiency, which is something that the, U the, the United States, you know, in the U.S., the advertising and marketing industry tried that. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago with this total market approach and quickly discovered that it doesn't work. So cultural marketing is really about leading with, um, you know, the unique lived experiences of different consumer groups. Well, that's good. Thank you for that. That's pretty comprehensive. And again, are corporations requesting help on this or is there an element of heavy selling that is required on your part? Well, I would say that there was heavier selling before 2020. <laughs> And there's much more of an intentional and calculated um, interest now um, from, from, you know, global companies and enterprises pursuing cultural marketing expertise. Mm -hmm. And really what happened in, you know, 2020, as we all know, not only living through a global pandemic, um, but also a racial reckoning that while rooted in the United States reverberated around the world in other multicultural communities or multiracial societies. And I think now you have companies around the world considering their long-term viability re relative to their ability to reach and connect with a more diverse consumer and ever-changing consumer. And so we find 
that there's a lot of demand mm. for our knowledge and cultural acumen and our expertise. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, let, let's briefly talk about brand management in, a, in an era of social media, chat GPT, you know, AI, etc. Where is this all going? Is this a good direction? <laughs> well, what a, what a um, fun question. <laughs> you know, well, I think we can have different conversations about social media and AI, you know, chat, yeah. GPT, all of that. I'll start with social media, which is we've already seen a bit of an evolution. You know, the headlines right now, I mean, I think we'd be, you know, as business people, the um, living under a rock if we didn't see these headlines right now about Meta going up against Twitter and yeah. Meta's recent launch of threads, right? It's the... Yes. Um, uh, Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg's story in the headlines right now. Um, but what what we're seeing, and I think where that's coming from, is social media platforms have gone from being platforms that connect people to people, and they've become really infiltrated by brands. So they're platforms connecting people to brands more. And the more that happens, frankly, mm -hmm. I think it, it diminishes a bit the organic connections mm -hmm. that were originally intended. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more fragmentation in social media. And I think it will continue to be more fragmented where people create smaller communities and environments online and as opposed to spending more time on one major platform you'll find people spreading their time across mm. you know smaller more specific um dedicated uh platforms so that's definitely a trend that we see in social media i mean just think about how tiktok has exploded in the last few years yeah. i mean you know it wasn't the conversation we were having five years ago about tiktok there was still a lot of apprehension about how invasive that was from a privacy perspective. And now, you know, TikTok seems to be the go-to. So we'll continue to see an evolution of social media. I think this space around AI is particularly interesting. And, you know, I'm a former and recovering engineer, but no, always once an engineer, always an engineer. Yeah. But um, I love uh, I love my space in the in the digital world because as someone who comes with both a science training in engineering and a marketing training, and there I find um, the evolution of technology and the role it plays in marketing really fascinating. And I think uh, while I'm cautious about AI, um, I'm also really excited about the potential. I think. Um, if folks haven't read it, there's a fantastic article that just came out in Harvard Business Review, the most recent copy. And it's really about, uh, you know, exploring the potential of AI to augment human creativity and inspire innovation. Uh, and they were talking about in product development, but I think there's great potential in marketing development too. When I think about where we're going yes. with AI, it's also, you know, I also think about what's happening um, in other parts of technology, like, you know, self-driving uh, electric cars. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we have to be careful that as we consider and design technology like this, that we're thinking about it as an augmentation to human creativity. Mm -hmm. And it's not about replacing human yeah. capital, but rather complementing it. Uh -huh. uh, and that's really important. So how do we use it to our advantage to push innovation, um, but not replace 
who we are as humans. I had a great experience recently as I was attending an award ceremony for marketers like me at Seven Elements Group. We had had the pleasure of winning an award for mm -hmm. some of the work we do with ESPN. And one of the interesting parts of the uh, award ceremony was a little bit of a test or a quiz for the audience to um, answer a question. Um, actually, they provided the questions a bit like Jeopardy. They provided the, the answer. answer. Yeah. yeah, they provided the answer. And then you had to say whether the whether that was generated by humans or mm -hmm. by AI. And it's interesting when you look at it, you really see the nuance in how creative and interesting AI can be, but it doesn't by any means replace what we as humans have the ability to really understand from the human experience. And so I do think that it provides inspiration mm -hmm. and influence, um, but we certainly need to think about it as a complement rather than a yeah. replacement. You yeah, know, I think that takes the fear out of it as well. I think so. I totally agree with you on that. Okay, um, I'd like to end this episode um, with this question. Um, with regards to marketing, what social impact encourages you, Alina? And also on the flip side, distresses you? Mm, that's a heavy question, Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be... There's so much. Yeah, there's so much happening in the world right now. Um. You know, it's interesting. I, I've i been thinking a lot about this, given the work that we do with Macy's. We um, most recently had the opportunity to support Macy's in the development and publishing of their very first, their inaugural DE&I report. Mm -hmm. And what it reminded me of, and we're seeing this from other enterprises, is that the transparency in DEI and also what we, you know, ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance. We're seeing a lot more transparency where we're seeing, you know, what organizations are doing um, in their journey of building corporate responsibility and social impact into the fabric of their business and being transparent about that journey being a marathon, not a sprint, because we're learning how to operationalize inclusion. So I'm encouraged from a social impact perspective in the world of marketing is how companies are now really trying to build social impact and corporate responsibility into the fabric of their enterprises. That encourages me. And I'm especially encouraged by an increased focus on the S in ESG. And I mentioned it earlier, but for those who don't know, environmental, social, and corporate governance, I don't think there has been as much a focus on the social part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, we're seeing corporate CEOs, you know, now agree that ESG um, in totality is really core to their roles. So, so that part is encouraging to me. As far as what still concerns me, mm -hmm. Um, and what keeps me up at night, mm -hmm. besides all the things that are challenging in the world, right, uh, environmentally, especially, mm -hmm. um, we're living in a time where, you know, things are burning in, in, in Canada and changing the skies. And the highest temperature recorded recently, didn't we? Oh, my gosh. You know, my mom lives in, in San Antonio, Texas, and they, they were temperatures in, in Fahrenheit. <laughs> In the, between you know 110 and 120 which is unheard of yeah. um you know so 
what what and it, and you asked me the question with respect to marketing so let's bring it back those types of things concern me with respect to what's called you know in the business world greenwashing which is this performative mm. nature of companies wanting to look like they're socially conscious but their companies don't actually their organizations don't actually reflect genuinely reflect reflect a commitment to that and so we see still very performative actions. And you know what, if you did an assessment today of companies that all made, especially in the US, mm-hmm. all made a big statement in, um, you know, in 2020, after the racial reckoning, you know, yes. sort of really reverberated around the world, and you took stock today of how many companies said something about their racial equity commitments and how many people actually live up to that, um, there's a there's a disparity there. And so I think it's important for folks to continue to double down on how they change from the inside out mm. and they put the money where their mouth is. And that concerns me because it's on all of us as citizens, business is people. It's not an inanimate object. You know, we bring our co- individual culture and lived experience to the table. And so I think it's important for us to all reflect in the business world about what role we play in continuing to help make the world a better place. Mm. Um, And I'd like to continue to see intentions put into action in a meaningful way, which is why companies like Seven Elements Group and others in the marketplace who are committed to doing the kind of cultural marketing work that we do are so important and so necessary because uh, companies need to, you know, need to do right for the world mm-hmm. uh, and the communities that they serve, not just for their growth. And I think it's possible to do both. Mm. You know, I, th- I think we could almost do a complete episode just on this last <laughs> question in terms of what distresses you with marketing and how the social element of the ESG um, should be covered. But uh, thank you for that. That's very interesting. Um, Alina Mwoka Blanchard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much, Elaine, for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.